This episode of the Fabulous Learning Nerds is sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTIs, counselor, and teacher appointments, and much more. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash B to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. They are the fabulous learning nerds. Because if you're tired of the old ways of getting it done, you've got the fabulous learning nerds. Scott, Dan, and Abby are making it fun. The best ideas that you've ever heard. So everybody spread the word. They're gonna keep you with turning the fabulous learning nerds. Fabulous learning nerds. Oh yeah! Hey everybody, happy holidays and welcome to another fantastic episode of your fabulous learning nerds. I'm Scotty, your host, and with us again at the holidays. You love him, Dan Coonrod. Ho ho ho! He's such a good little boy. Dan! <laughs> Where did that drop come from? That's amazing. Santa. Santa made that Santa came Whoa. over and made that drop. Absolutely. I he wanted to specifically for you. And so I called him up. A good friend of mine called him up and um and, th- and there you have it. It's all good. Yeah. How you doing? I'm uh Right now, in my mind, picturing you on the phone with Santa Claus, talking through just things in general. <laughs> I'm pretty good. I am uh, fair to Midland. Fair to Midland. Fair to Midland. You caught me sleeping. You caught me I sleeping. Know, I know. You took advantage of that. I juked. You juked when whatever. That's good. I'm glad you're fair to How me. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm hanging in there, which is great. It's beautiful. It's sunny. And um, we're in the middle of the holidays. And um, yeah, so that's it's 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 good. And things are slowly, one day at a time, getting back to normal here, which is great. We had the uh, annual Christmas lighting downtown where they shut down the streets and have a street party. And I live in Florida, of course, so they bring in snow. They get a snow machine, which the snow lasts for an hour, maybe, right? And uh, everybody goes crazy because they bring in the snow. And I'm like, I lived in Minneapolis for 40 years. Yeah, I've seen enough snow. Like, I don't need yeah. to see any more snow. Yeah. Snow is not my thing. Yeah. Uh, but I tell people, like, I grew up in central Pennsylvania. So, like, I've done my time. I'm, you know, I, I'm out on good behavior and I don't want any more snow. <laughs> no, no more snow. Speaking of no snow. Um, I don't believe there's any snow where she's at. Um, this Abby Dawson's with us, everybody. Abby! Hey, guys. I take that back. You do get snow every once in a while, don't you? Every once in a while, but it's not too bad. I mean, I've lived in like St. Louis and New Jersey where snow's a real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in Tennessee now, but I don't love snow. I love watching my son play in snow, but I don't Mm. love snow. Not so much. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. Nope. I I do have a theory, though, 
um, living up in Minneapolis. It's my cold weather theory, and that is you um, you can't tell the difference between minus twenty and minus forty. They feel the same. <laughs> yeah, your face you're your face goes numb. <laughs> your face goes numb at about. 10 degrees below, and then you just can't tell the difference anymore. So that's about that. So we're glad that uh, you guys don't have any snow. We do have a guest here today. He may or may not have snow. Um, we're going to get to know all about him in a little segment that we call What's Your Deal? Hey, man, what's your deal? Matthew. Hey. What's your deal, my friend? Man, my deal is that uh, learning and development should create equity and opportunity for folks. That's my deal. I've been in, in L&D for t- almost 20 years now and have had an opportunity to do it in a lot of different places, a lot of different organizations. And what I care about is the impact that we have at the end of the day, not just on the business, but the lives of the humans on the other side. So, yeah, that's my deal. That is That is fantastic. Go into a little more detail about um, how you got where you're at a little bit. I, I, our, our audience would love to know. Well, they're on pins and needles, I'm sure. Um, so huh. the, uh, how did I get where I am? So, so I'm a principal at, at Guild Education. It's, my job here is talent strategy and career mobility. But I, I mean, I started my career in just like hardcore uh, training and facilitation, a year with Homeland Security, a year with DOD, uh, and then spent, I worked for a company called GP Strategies and spent another six years just bouncing back between large organizations as they were transforming their learning, their L&D org. And uh, what would the structure be? And how are we going to, uh, what was the breakdown? What were the systems that we were using? What was the strategy of those particular organizations? So kind of grew up from facilitation to instructional design. Uh, learning development, learning systems. That's kind of the career through up into uh, strategy consulting and then went in-house at Capital One during Capital One's digital transformation. Some of the funnest years of my career is trying to help a business figure out, uh, you all came here and thought you were coming to work for a bank, but gotcha, we're a tech company now. And so uh, how does that look if you're a bank teller? What does that look like if you're a customer service rep? Um, what does that look like if if your job was uh, some white collar job where you were a data analyst and we're telling you now you have to be a data scientist? So all of this journey has been in, in my world. I don't I don't know. I, I do the job in front of me, but I am also always trying to connect the dots beyond what is clearly here in front of me. And when I look at the larger story, I am always thinking about how do folks the development that we offer the people, is it just fixing the problem at hand today or are we developing them in a way that they can grow, that they get to seize their next opportunity when that comes? And how do companies make sure that they're offering growth on the other side of that? So I I think all of that journey has led me to working at Guild where I get to help companies figure out how they're going to leverage education in particular in a way for frontline or early career employees to really develop themselves and uh, build skills for the future into what they're going to need. So that's 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 my 
that's my deal is what is the impact that we're having in the way that we develop and what kind of opportunities does it create for the humans on the other side when it's all said and done. Love it. Absolutely love it. Love uh, impact. I think that's why we're all here. Um, and I'm super duper excited to get into what we're going to be talking about today. Um, with that, let's go ahead and dive into our topic of the week. All right, this week we're going to be talking about equity in talent development. Interesting, totally excited. Want to get um, your thoughts and dip into the vast magic knowledge basket from um, you, Matthew, around, uh, around talent equity. Uh, I think this is really, really uh, interesting. So how, do, how would you want to describe that to our audience? What is, what is this idea of uh, equity in talent development all about? Yeah, I, I, I'll just I'll start here. I think the world has gone mad for upskilling and for skills in general. And uh, I think skills are important. I think, you know, if everywhere from like the World Economic Forum in these big spaces, the business roundtable with executives and government leaders across the world are talking about skills. And then I think every platform vendor out there is talking about skills. And I think most of us in our daily jobs are thinking, what skills are we getting out there? And at the end of the day, I don't think all skills are made equal. And I think we, we as learning and development professionals, have a profound impact on the way that skills are doled out. It's a part of what we do. We think about it. But I think the world, and I, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna go for from, for the jugular right from the beginning because uh, if if you've spent any time with me, I'm a I'm a fan of a hot take. And uh, here's my hot take is that all skills aren't made equally. I mean, I think the vendors of this world have been selling so hard about the uh, half-life of skills. And there is data to back up that the half-life of skills is, in fact, diminishing. Uh, the data that gets quoted so often is the half-life of the skills five years. And the more technical, it gets closer to two and a half years. And I think that's all true. But I also think that we've used that as justification for, like, non-stop videos in your face that show you how to do the one skill in front of you that you need to do, uh, especially when we think about frontline employees. And at the end of the day, I think we, we being our field, um, unintentionally reinforce inequities in the way that we develop skills. Uh, if you think about your own careers and the opportunities you've had to develop people, I want you to think of the call reps that you've developed. I want you to think of those folks in frontline roles. I want you to think of the kind of content that you've put in front of them. And the, the answer on what kind of content you most often have put in front of them is how to use the tools, the processes, and the systems that they're responsible for. And so, in fact, those are skills, but those are the skills with the shortest shelf life. Those are the skills that don't matter outside of your company. Those are the skills that ultimately are changing so quickly with every push of a new update on your system and a process. And then I want you to think of what kind of skill development executives and leaders get. And I, the kind of skills that leaders get are these skills where we say, how do you communicate? Do you know how to tell a story? Do you know how to present it to people? Do you know how to pitch? Do you know all how to create ideas, design thinking? Oh, you're one of our leaders, you get these ideas. 
And so ultimately what we create is like some really significant division between the haves and the have-nots with skills. If skills are the new currency, then we're giving some folks something that is very inflationary and not going to buy a whole lot. And we're giving some folks really durable skills that are going to last their entire career. And they, they can take between companies and they can take between roles and they can take between departments. And so the way that we even show up as we deliver and develop training, as we make learning available, has a profound impact, a butterfly impact on the people that we're developing, not just in the role that they're in, but the roles that they'll have for the future. I think that's profound. I think it's really important. And I think it's a place that we have more influence than we realize, and potentially that we are reinforcing inequitable systems in the workplace. Matthew, I love so much of that. <laughs> oh my god, my I my mind is blown because you are one hundred percent right. Like I couldn't agree with you more, and I'm not going to beat myself up. No, but I know I'm I'm part of the problem. Totally yeah. part of the problem. Totally part of the problem. So, um, I I love it. I love. I it. I have a career where I think about. Look, I owned learning systems and technology. At Capital One, I made decisions about which vendors came in. I made decisions about who had access to those learning platforms, those learning systems. I was the one that was helping put the pilots in place for this like sophisticated learning journey for the executives. Meanwhile, I was trying to figure out how to scale the shortest possible video to the rest of the organization. And we did it in the name of business. But like when I reflect on my career, I think about the potential impact that those decisions have made. And he, here's what is fascinating. So, so I started working at this company. It was a consulting group. And there is nothing like a 24-year-old who has so little experience in the workplace. Sorry for you if you're young out there. I started in this field when I was 21. But I, I had a meeting with her one-on-one. -on -one and she had come from a different practice in this consulting business. And we were doing a meet and greet. And she said, so, so tell me about the consulting practice that you're going to be building here. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to help with learning and development initiatives in large organizations with corporations. And she said, oh, so you're going to help people who already have access to education and development and opportunity have access to more education, development and opportunity. Wow. And I feel like <laughs> in that moment. In that moment, like she punched me in the face and I was trying to pull myself together. And I probably said something smart, like, uh, actually, I'm the person who takes folks who didn't quite get the education they need and fixes them on the other side of college. Like I, I'm probably, because that has been my mentality for a lot of my career. If you're in L&D, you know, like you're picking up the pieces of what you feel like people, the skills they don't have from other organizations they come from or early career folks. Um, and then that night, uh, I was in San Francisco onboarding at the company. And then that night, I laid in the bed all night long, staring at the ceiling and thought to myself, like, what have I done? Have I been, have I been a tool of inequity in the world and didn't even pay attention to it? Her name is Frances, the young lady who, who hit me in the face. And like Frances, with her words, of course. But Francis has like rocked my world 
and has absolutely made me reflect on a lot of decisions that I've made in my career in the name of the business, in the name of this is what everybody does, in the name of this is how systems work, and in the name of, well, we have to manage the budget to exempt the non-exempt populations in the organization, but ultimately that reflection has been hard. Now, wait, wait just one more second, because I wanna add one more layer on this. And that is, if we develop people differently by exemption status or level in the organization, this it's gonna get tough. And the majority of my folks of color or folks who come from different socioeconomic backgrounds or from disadvantaged stories, then my role isn't just like inequities in terms of people based on exemption status or level. If we know that the vast majority of the black folks live in frontline roles, then actually I'm a part of the systemic problem in society based on the decisions that I make and how I skill people. And if I'm not actively advocating for skills development, durable, transferable skills development for my frontline talent, then I am effectively continuing this process of the haves and the have-nots and investment. Here's a data point for you. We went and pulled data from Georgetown, my team. I'm very grateful for the team I get to work with at Field. And I asked a question. Here's what I said. How how, once all of these dots started getting connected for me, I said, can you go pull the data? If you look at like ATD or Training Mag or some of those other publications, they're putting out data every year about how we develop people based on uh, industry vertical. We're, how, what kind of investments are we making? Do we see e-learning development more here? Do we see they're using, you know, they do these benchmarking surveys. And I asked them, I said, can you go pull the benchmarking surveys and see what they say about demographics, um, geography, race, socioeconomic background? Can you go see what's there? And the answer was none of these reports talked about it. None of them. And again, is it intentional? I don't, I don't think it's intentional. I don't think there's some grand conspiracy here. But I think that it's folks like us frankly, who come from a place of access and opportunity, who don't think about the impacts. And so we don't ask the questions that would tell us a story that we need to hear about the way that women do or do not have access to leadership development based on the decisions that we're making. And so um, when we started to look at the data, I asked them, can we back our way into this? Like, can we find some data sets that exist somewhere in the world, go to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, go to Go anywhere you can. And so there was a report that came out of Georgetown a few years ago that talked about the way um, people have access to development opportunities in corporate settings based on their existing education status as well. If we know existing education status, then directionally, we know the percentage of Americans by race that fall into each of those categories. And we can start to kind of back our way into the data. And here's what we found. For every $1 spent on training white employees, roughly 81 cents is spent on black employees, and 68, spent is, 68 cents is spent on Hispanic or Latino employees. And then I had to reflect about the decisions that I make and how they do or do not contribute to continued inequities in society. So anyway, that's... I. I, I 
I have gone into a tangent and I want to make more space for you all to ask questions or to have a dialogue here and not just me rattle on. But the deeper I get into it, the more thoughtful I want to be about the decisions I make about what goes into a learning program, who gets access to it, and how we make sure that on the other side of that, they have opportunities to use those skills to grow and create this cycle of opportunity for those around them and the communities they belong to. So Matthew, I want to, I want to go back to something you said. It was small, but I think it's important. You said the have and have nots. And that is difficult to argue with because it's clear, right? Like have and have nots. That's a very good visual of, of what's happening. I think how we normally hear it, and I know how I've heard it in my career, is the can and cannots. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? And it's it's erroneous, but that that's how it's framed. I've heard many times that the people I'm trying to give training to can't do the kind of training we're trying to offer. Yeah. Um, and that is something I try to be brave and rally against when I really believe in it. Yeah. <laughs> because I came from a position of cannot, um, but I had to prove that I could, <laughs> which yeah. not necessarily bad, but that's, I understand the barriers. Um, as people go into this new year, any advice for how they can rally against that? Um, as we go into our planning session for how do I make my program better? What are some steps we can take to get there? Yeah, let me go like super concrete for a second. And Dan and I go back a few years where, um, we, I, I used to talk prior to talking about this particular issue. I used to talk a lot about learner experience and one of the things I still talk about it, but ultimately, um, learner experience is grounded in listening to the voices of the learners rather than just the business. And um, ultimately, the best, biggest changes that I've made in my career in talent development didn't come from some idea I generated at a con uh, at a. Uh, conference. Like no executive is like, oh, I can't wait for you to get back from that conference and tell me all the things that we should go buy now. Right? Like, <laughs> there's, they're going, oh God, they're going to another learning conference. God help us on the other side of it. Um, I think what I found is that we create the most change when we channel the voices of our learners and frankly, our business executives really thoughtfully into a compelling narrative. Like if we talk about Part of the change in our job as learning professionals, it is narrative forming. It is storytelling. And so I think there are kind of, I would just branch it into two different ways that I would go about this. Abby, if I were in that position, I'm going to try and do two things. First, I'm going to gather stories on the market of where this kind of change is happening. And I want to tell those stories. And so for me, it is the press release at Target that talks about the person uh, her name is Sarah. I know her name because I care a lot about these stories. Sarah worked at a desk uh, in a regional Target store, and she's now going into a software engineering program. And I'm going to tell you, there's somebody who believed that Sarah wasn't capable of that. She just worked hourly at Target. Or I will tell you about the dozens of folks at Walmart. There's one that I could think of. Her name is Jaren. She lived in rural Louisiana, and Jaren was... Uh, basically have asset responsibilities, like asset controls in the store. And, uh, and now she's, a, she's an intern in software engineering at Walmart's headquarters, uh, or the dozens of cybersecurity folks 
who are now in frontline or entry-level cybersecurity roles who were checking folks out in a line at Walmart. So I think a part of making change and believing that people are capable is making sure that you're capturing the stories that exist in the market. Uh, Walmart is always talking about. I know Walmart gets a bad rap in a lot of places, but let me just say that Walmart believes that there is a path for everyone. If you're looking at any of the posts from uh, from their CPO, from their chief people officer, or so many others, they are hashtag a path for everyone, everywhere that they can, because they're trying to tell a story of how people can develop internally rather than having to leave to go to a different job. So I think that's really powerful. And I think the other second part is, and this is a part of learner experience design. Notice I didn't say learning experience design because our industry has deeply screwed that up as we've adopted those practices. And we could come back to that in a minute if you want to. But ultimately is going and listening to people. And I wanna tell you, like, here's what I'm gonna say. In the worlds of can and cannot, if you are a 32-year-old single mother and you are showing up in a retail location during the pandemic and a business executive thinks for one effing second that that is a cannot, then they have dissociated from reality of the kind of labor and work that it goes into those stories. And I think that is our job. If we want to create change, then I think it is our job to capture the story of those associates, of those employees, and the, of who they are. I think one of the things, one of the biggest problems with skills and the narratives around skills, let me just tell you, I'm the only, I'm the oldest of four. I'm the only college uh, the, with a bachelor's degree. I have a brother with an associate's degree, but I'm the only one of my siblings with a bachelor's degree. And so if you look based on job descriptions, uh, my sister is a hairstylist or my other brother is a plumber or the brother that's an electronics technician, and you imagine that their JD, their job description is their scale skills, then you're going to imagine them as a cannot. But if you know my sister, then you know my sister in addition to being a hairstylist, which means she runs her own business and is responsible for her taxes and has to figure out her own strategy. She also is the uh, you know, president of the booster at the gymnastics and she's figuring out marketing strategy and fundraising and she's developing graphics and she's rallying groups of people. And there is a lot more to that story. My brother, the plumber, who conveniently for the purposes of my job, more than the job description that is like, I plunge toilets or I put pipes in, that brother also codes from his phone. Codes from his phone. So like, I think there, this narrative of can versus cannot is because we haven't taken the time as learning and development professionals to get to know the learners that are perceived as cannots and tell their story in the form of personas and journey maps and quotes and stories in a way that really compels actions from leaders to make differential investments in that population instead of just giving them the minimum that they need to do to hit the button or follow the process in a call center. I, I 100% just, man, that rings so many bells. I, I have spent a lot of my professional career working in an industry where high turnover is acceptable. And I feel and I see how you said dissociate. And, and I 100% think that's what's going on. We, we build these roles. And we just go, well, they're going to be here for like six months and then they're gone. So don't waste any time. 
Like, just get ready to train the next group that comes in. And, like, man, like, we're here talking about, like, social inequity and we're talking about, like, durable skills. And, like, these are, like, huge, important, real things. But, like, if I'm just thinking, like, brass tacks and I'm just thinking dollars, if you take the same thought and you're like, hey, let's invest in some of these people we just hired and let's start building roadmaps for their long-term success, well, then, like, I don't have to worry about 50% turnover because I'm working to build people who are going to stay. I'm investing in time and people. And, like, the turnover crisis, in my mind, starts to abate immediately yeah yeah and instead instead we're just like trying to figure out like all right cool how do i get how do i get these leaders these courses i as a leader i i got leadership training and development the day after i promoted to a leadership role like okay cool you're a leader here's the courses and i'm like a dollar late you know like what happened like i had it i would have been at that spot so much sooner yeah if I had gotten that training sooner. Yeah, I, I think this is, so let's go from like inspiring and like gut to like, let's go to data. What's the data from 2021 about the number one pe reason people quit their job? And the number one reason, it's a tie. It has always been paid. It's always been paid for as long as Pew has done the research, it's always been paid. Last year, for the first time ever, 61% of people said, I'm leaving because I don't get pay. And 61% of people said, I'm leaving because I don't see a pathway to opportunity here. I don't see how my career is going to develop. I don't see what is next. That's the Pew Research. Uh, McKinsey did another study. Uh, their numbers look a little different, but their number one reason was lack of career development and advancement, 41%. This is data from April 2021 to April 2022. Number one reason, lack of career development and advancement, 41. Inadequate, inadequate total compensation, 36. 34% uncaring and uninspiring leaders, and 31% lack of meaningful work. I, the way that I talk about this is that, number one, they don't have pathways. Number two, they don't have pay. Number three, they don't have purpose. So if I am outlining for people, it's not even that every employee has to get promoted. Like I'm not talking, uh, promotion rates in most companies live in the 10 to 12% range. Uh, some, some companies lower. But ultimately, it's not that I have to have everybody in a promotable role. It's not that I have to have everybody in executive development. I just have to be a workplace where people believe that opportunity exists and people will stay longer because they see, look, people come from the call center, from the contact center into training roles, into QA roles. And what do I do as a business? I tell those stories. That's the way I help everybody see it. Let me tell you about John. Let me tell you about Susie. Let me tell you about Tasha. Let me tell you about all these people who have had these opportunities and been promoted, or they found their way into that first entry-level job into the exempt role where they're now a project coordinator, or they're doing some level of QA analyst work, or, you know, can I... Uh, articulate those stories about how people develop? And then can I put pathways in front of them? I think one of the things I spend a lot of time on, I sit inside a, a career mobility center of excellence at Guild, where we're helping employers figure out not just how to get them the right talent development, but how to get them into the next role. And there is hella friction 
in most companies between getting people from non-exempt to exempt roles, from those hourly roles into a salaried role and the responsibilities that are there. And frankly, there's no, there's no like great reason for it. There are like incremental decisions that we've made, policy reasons that we've put in place. And ultimately what we have is this incredibly complicated friction filled system that keeps people limited to the places that they are rather than expanding opportunity. And if I can start to peel back a few of those decisions and put in front of folks pathways, this is what's really important to me about pathways. And Josh Burson, I don't know if if you all read Josh Burson's research, but Josh Burson just came out. And one of the things that he said, he just came out with a paper on, on pathways instead of career paths. And his differentiation is career paths is this like vertical movement within a certain job family. And career pathways have this idea of gateway jobs where I go from one job family to another. Uh, can I see how being a training manager in a call center leads to being, I mean, we experience in our field that jump from training to learning design that many people make. That's the jump. That's the gateway job. Being something like a training manager or in a trainer role is a great segue or gateway job into that next thing. That's what it looks like in our field. But ultimately, can we be more intentional about showing our employees the opportunities where you can go from frontline hourly role that we need in the organization and we can show them the gateway and then those entry level into the, the exempt categories and then deeper and deeper into software engineering or cybersecurity or these roles that have really high uh, uh, rates where they're going to grow over the next few years. If I can paint that picture of what's possible, the art of the possible, and tell the stories of people who are making that jump, then I have an organization that believes it's possible and will retain at a higher rate because this is the place where we develop talent. I, I, I know, I, my guess is many of the folks who are listening to this, like we get sucked into the day-to-day -day of our job, designing learning, facilitating learning, developing the content, et cetera. I, I think if we... Um, miss the broader story here, like we're doing ourselves a disservice because the work that we do is so mission oriented. It matters. It's why most of us got in the field. And then we get caught up in like, Storm, how do I get this XAPI statement? Where is my LMS? Do I have an LXP? Like we're just a cog in the wheel. And the reason we showed up in this field in the first place completely falls from our eyes. We've lost focus. The mission remains. The opportunities we seek to create for others still matter. And whether or not we tune into that has a profound impact, not just on us and how energized we are about the work we show up and do every day, but it has a profound impact on the lives of hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people who have access to the content that we develop and the programs we put together and the systems we manage and whether or not they believe that that leads to the next opportunity for them. Like we got to tune in to the bigger story of what we're doing. So about that bigger story, you the storytelling that we go and bring back to the business about what our contributions are and that they're bigger than we taught them how to use this button. Um, I think it's essential that we talk about how we've contributed to the ecosystem of the business, not that we achieved our role, right? That we, that we hit our, yeah. our job requirements. Um, uh, because one of those other leading drivers you said for why people leave was uncaring or un inspiring leaders. Um, 
pretty easy to shift that if suddenly you're saying, I care about your development, not just your ability to do your job, (laughs) right? So that's an ecosystem contribution, not a role contribution. And I think if we can help the business understand that we are part of um, this whole being of their business and not just fulfilling a role, it helps tell that story. Yeah, we've got to get relentless about data. I, I think that we get so human centered in the way that we I, I was I've written a number of articles and talked a number of times about how we as learning professionals should actually think like product folks. Product folks are responsible for essentially three things. The technology that they use, how is it growing and developing, human centered nature of what they're designing, which is does the product I create, do people want it? Because if they're not willing to buy it, then I, I kind of don't have a product. The third, like most critical piece of being a product person is data. How I thought that this is what they want. I tested, I listened to them. I baked what I baked based on personas and journey maps. But then on the other side of it, I am constantly collecting data about how is it trending in market? Who's consuming it? Uh, what impact is it having on their lives? Do I have a net promoter score? I know there are a lot of folks that hate a net promoter score in L&D. Whatever, I don't really care. But the point being, with a product, you're always thinking, how does this resonate in the market? And I think L&D professionals, look, I have been in a bank, right? A top 10 bank in the country where, you know, data is not always so easy to find and come by. But I think as L&D professionals, we should be relentless about the data on business impact that we're having in a way that helps us round out that narrative. Like if we do a really good job up front of gathering the data and telling the stories qual- uh, qualitatively that build a compelling case for what we're doing, I mean, I'm with you that on the other side of that, we also have to have that like, what is the impact we're having on the ecosystem? We can't be the only, right? That's always been the challenge. We kind of get frustrated in learning and development because we can't isolate the impact that they have. There are too many variables around like what we're developing, plus the systems are getting better, plus, you know, talent acquisition is hopefully hiring better people. And we've got better. I mean, there are a lot of things that contribute to it. But how can we isolate as much as possible the impact through data of what we're having? And how do we tell that story? You know what, if I'm, I've been in as a vendor relationship, do you know why we hold QBRs with you? Yeah, to make sure you're not unhappy, but also to to tell the story of how we're continuing to have impact so that you don't replace us, right? Like we're trying to make sure you understand (laughs) the impact. I think that L&D leaders should be holding the equivalent of QBRs with their internal stakeholders to say QBRs for those who don't know. Sorry, I just realized quarterly business review. If you're an L&D, you should be having a QBR with your business leaders where you show up and tell the impact of what you're doing, the plan of where you're going and let them have that cycle of giving you feedback on where you're going next. But yeah, Abby, I'm with you. Like what I have got to be able to tell the, the story of as I make these decisions, what impact is it having on the business? And some of that could be promotion of underrepresented talent in the organization. Go build a relationship with your uh, chief diversity officer, your DEI leaders, and get access to the data they have that you don't have that tells the story of how people going through this program are now being promoted at a higher rate. And it matters. to Why does it matter to the business? The face of consumers in America is changing. I need business leaders who understand how to build products that service a changing demographic. 
So yeah, it matters to the business to make sure that I have underrepresented talent growing through the organization because the consumer base is changing. Those are the things we need to have uh, the language and the data to tell the story inside the business about the impact we're having. Love this idea of a quarterly business review with our internal stakeholders from just a value perspective. Because unfortunately, my experience in L&D is that, you know, we're kind of, um, you know, a necessary evil. Like, oh, we kind of have to have a learning department. And correct me if I'm wrong, when times get tough, they're like, well, you guys don't have any value. We're going to get rid of you first, which is, oh, it drives me nuts because we, we, you know, and I'm guilty of it. We aren't telling our story well enough around the value that we create. And if we can have the data around hey, this is what we put in place, and this is how it impacts your business. I mean, what's the cost of replacing even our lowest level people on a regular basis because they didn't have the opportunity to grow, because they weren't happy where they were? How much does it cost to continue to have leaders in place who are clueless about how to have a conversation with people about where they're going and how they can grow and how they can add value or who they can even talk to about this. That's been my experience. Like if, you know, organizations say all the time, like, Hey, you know, um, you're responsible for your own growth and development, which is true. It is true. But if you're not there to help me, then I'm left with what? I don't, I guess I should find a better place. Anyway, I didn't mean to rant, but you kind of triggered no. me. I've been triggered. <laughs> uh, if, I'm if triggered. I'm honest, this is my like my goal of my career is just to go around triggering people into action. Uh, so uh, fair enough. Hot damn. Uh, I'm well, you did a great job today. Me. I'm triggered. <laughs> I, I will say, I will say this. I think you you did make a great point about L and D being displaced in times of economic uncertainty. I think uh, even before some of this insert, was it was it Snap that like got rid of their intel, entire L&D division? Was it TikTok or Snap? I can't remember. It was TikTok. Yeah, okay. it was, it was TikTok. Like, yeah we're just going to let go of all the L&D folks because they're just not even providing any business. So our, our value to the business. So yeah, I think that's a real risk. Um, I think it's less of a risk right now than it was in 2008, 2009. In that downturn, I think... Uh, here, here is what has changed is that the tight labor market means that employers see they need to do more work to make sure they keep people engaged. Uh, I am going to go, Scott, to one of the other things that you said, because I've got another hot take. Are you ready for this one? I think there is a Lay phrase. on me. Yeah, here, here it is. I think there's a phrase that I used uh, nonstop when I was in L&D, and like some folks put it on the board, and it's there. It's their mission, which is that people should own their own development. And I don't think that that's wrong. Like, I think in general, people, I can't, I can lead a horse to water. I can't make him drink, right? So there, there is a lot of truth to that statement. I also think when it comes to the role that we play in an organization, like ultimately, there are lots of folks in your organization. And this, to me, in my mind, comes from an equity standpoint. If you have grown up in a house where you didn't have people who talked about uh, presentations and uh, sales meetings or 
if what they did, the model that you grew up with was a blue collar hourly worker, then ultimately, how do you own your own development? Like, how do you see that that is a reality? I think, uh, and and I don't I don't necessarily want to talk about this from a race and ethnicity standpoint, but MLK often talked about it's a cruel thing to tell a man to pull himself up by his bootstraps when in fact he doesn't have boots. And I think that ultimately there's this concept of occupational identity, which is like, how do you, is, is your, you, you and I, we're going to go to Christmas and holiday parties over the next few weeks. And uh, sometimes we're going to go with strangers and they're going to ask us in the first three questions, like we're going to talk about the weather because that's what we talk about whenever we don't know people. We're going to talk about where <laughs> we're from if we're with people from all different locations. And then the third question is like, what do you do? What are you working on? What kind of work do you do? And we have a deep occupational identity. It's a, it's wrapped up in who we are. Here you all are on your not paid time hosting a podcast because you have such deep occupational identity in this profession. Like we are wrapped up in our careers. Um, this is not to say that frontline workers don't have deep occupational identity. Like my, my grandmother was a uh, worked in the grocery store at Harps in rural Arkansas. And let me tell you, that woman had some occupational identity about who she was and the work that she did. Or my grandfather that worked at Delta felt the same way about his career. But ultimately, it's hard to shift your occupational identity from I do the thing in front of me, right? Like I am a processor. I take calls. This is my lot in life. I work hour to hour and paycheck to paycheck and shift the narrative in people's head to no, I have technical skills that the business deeply desires, that society is in need of, and I make decisions based on my occupational identity. So I do think owning your own career is right. I think, you know, owning your development is right. But I also think we have got to be cognizant that we don't just develop people on their skills that's there, but we have a responsibility to shift the narrative. Guess what happens when you become an executive? They give you an executive coach. You know what an executive coach talks about? The way you show up in rooms, the questions you ask, the way you think, they're helping you shift your occupational identity from mid-level manager to executive and the way that an executive should show up in a room. We've got to provide some of that same coaching to our talent to help shift the narrative in their brains about who they are. Otherwise, their occupational identity and thus their sense of how do I develop myself is going to be wrapped up in their previous job, not wrapped up in the next job which is a whole nother layer. I know there's some people listening to this and they're like, Matthew, for God's sake, you're like, you're pushing me in every area, but I'm just going to say it. We should be thinking about how do we go outside of training materials and, and learning and how do we help reform occupational identity so we can get folks into their next role. Matthew, I, I hope they're going to bring you on for another podcast episode because I have a thousand more things to ask you, but <laughs> I'm stepping on Dan too. But one of the things that triggered me and what you just said was that um how important identity is and that like people grow into their roles and they're very connected to them but like i had no idea that lnd even existed even when i worked for the company that had an enormous lnd team um i happened to find it and i think that there has been will always be so much opportunity to help people find roles they don't know exist yeah and 
to help people who are not top performers because they're in the wrong role in a company that has better roles for them. Yes. Um, but they are being overlooked because they're in the wrong role and then no one's bothering to see what they're capable of. <laughs> Can I put some data behind this? It's going to be a little anecdotal, but the, the company I work for, Guild Education, we connect, we, we go in, we have a learning marketplace, we've got uh, programs from different universities and partners. We make those things available and we focus on the front line. As you can hear from my tone, I'm extremely passionate about that area. So the data, I, I you needed that context for me to tell you this. What we find consistently when we go to organizations where the footprint is, is like retail or food services, where the people who work in frontline roles don't have, don't interact with um, folks in uh, white collar or exempt level positions, do you know what program the majority, like when we start to look at the clustering of where people start to pursue degrees and certificates is, it's HR. Because those are the people from corporate that folks in frontline roles have access to. It's not that they thought all their life, oh, I wanna go to HR. It's I can only be what I can see. Like that's the concept you're talking about, Abby. I can't become something I don't know exists. I can only be what I can see. And so whether you're at home and growing up in a place where what you see is blue collar workers or you're working in a large organization, but you're in retail. And so you have no idea what logistics looks like in an organization like this. What does a whole, I mean, if you think about Walmart in particular, their logistics organization is enormous. They're managing data and information and packages that are getting to and from. It's a, a massive opportunity that folks cluster in HR because they're like, oh, I know who my HR rep is. You know, they come and talk about what new training programs are available or how to get a hold of folks if I need more emotional support or whatever those things are. And so they start to major in those areas rather than seeing all the opportunities that are out there. So I think this concept of I can only be what I can see is really critical in how we make sure that people see all the other things that are available to them, which goes back to that concept of pathways we were talking about earlier. Am I putting in front of my employees pathways that show them that a teller or a call center rep or a retail worker can get into a role where they're a training manager, uh, you know, at a regional level, which gives them access to data and more sites. And they realize, oh, I could be a data analyst here. And then once I'm a data analyst, then I see more and more opportunities that come for me. So I think getting those pathways that don't just show a vertical path, but instead show this kind of lattice, I call it a metro map, where you have all of these like changing stations, where you can go from one path to another. I think painting that picture is critical for people. Here's the story of where people have moved. Here's the reality of what it looks like to make these journeys and kind of the learning and development opportunities, the education opportunities, the connective tissue between those jobs so people can get the new skills and go to the next thing. Well, you know, that's why we're all here, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, that's why it's the best part of my week, right? When we yeah. get together with people that <laughs> really want, you started this off, this whole conversation off with the, uh, you know, I just want to make an impact. Yeah. You know, this is my five to nine, right? Not my nine to five. Yeah. And this is where I make bigger impact. Yeah. And I would challenge anybody listening, be thinking that same thing, right? Yeah. Like, how can we have a greater impact? So as we begin to think about wrapping things up a little bit, 
what one or seven things would you like to <laughs> leave with our audience today before we go? And we and we will definitely get you back in because I think there's just so much that I want to learn from you, and I want to thank you. That's that's very generous of you. Um, let me get. Let me see if I can sum it up in just like quick bullet points, which is the voice of the learner will always be more impactful than your voice. Always. How do you harness it? How do you use it to tell stories? How do you make direction based on that? Secondly, every decision that you make has a butterfly impact on the life. This is you accepted a role that is a calling when you come in L and D and it is too easy to miss the impact that you have from an equity standpoint. I think a lot of people in recent years have looked around and said, but what can I do? Society is broken. Things aren't okay. But what can I do? And I think our field is right with opportunity to create, create more equity in the world through the way that we develop skills uh, and the way that we give access to certain populations and opportunities the programs that we put in front of them. And I would just say final notes that ties to the last one I just said, which is don't forget the mission that brought you to this field. Like you may have ended up in this field to a certain degree on accident. You were just good at your job and they said, can you train on it? Can you help write the training? This is the story of so many of us in this field. And you came here because what you thought was, I can, I can have an impact on a lot of people. You mean you're going to pay me to go around and help make other people better? You're going to pay me more than what I was making to now go around and help make people better? Uh, yeah, that's exactly the job I'm signing up for. For every person listening to this, my ask for you is that you take the moment to reflect on your why. Why did you come to this field? What impact did you want to have? And I think this is the best time of year to ask yourself, am I doing it? Am I having the impact that I thought I would when I came here? And if not, what do I change? How do I change me? How do I, what are the goals? What's the impact I want to have? Uh, Scott, the way you said it, you're five to nine. You got the day job and the yay job. How do you make the Venn diagram between your day job tighter with that thing that you thought would have impact so that there's greater alignment? For everybody listening, how do you make the goal of what you're doing be more efficient at the stuff you don't want to do so that you have more capacity to do the things that have the impact, the things that got you here in the first place? Stay focused on the impact you can have. Don't let corporate America grind out of you the fire that brought you here in the first place. You've got to bring focus to that thing. So that's it, Scott. I, I, I appreciate Scott, you, Abby, Dan, thank you for the, the chance to come and chat with you all. Can't wait to do it again. Literally thousands of people are grabbing their training and development flag and hosting it way in the sky. <laughs> and Matthew, could you do us a favor? Could you uh, let our audience know just a little bit of how they could connect with you, get more of the goodness that you have before the next time we have you on? Yeah, I, I think if you want to, I write about these things. I share articles about these topics. I am on podcasts regularly. You will find me at linkedin.com slash in slash 
Matthew J. Daniel. That's it. Uh, so hit me on LinkedIn. Um, drop me an email, matthew.daniel at guildeducation.com. I'd love to chat about these issues and, uh, and see where it goes. Right. That's fantastic. Danielson. Yes, Scott. Could you do us a favor and let our audience know how they could connect with us? Absolutely. All right, party people. If you haven't already, send us an email at nerds at the Email us, join in on the conversation, ask us questions, maybe tell us about the reason that you got into learning and development, your calling, the moment to raise your flag, so to speak. If you're on Facebook, you can find us at Learning Nerds, our Instagram peeps, Fab Learning Nerds. And lastly, for more information about us, what we do, and updates, www.thelearningnerds.com. Scott? Thanks, Dan. Hey, everybody. Do me a favor. Hit that subscribe button. Share this out with your friends. We'd really appreciate it. If you like what we had to say or if you didn't like what we had to say, leave us a review, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever. We'd love to hear from you. Um, that way we can get more of our message out, more of the goodness that Matthew J. Daniels got for all of you to share with your friends. And with that, I'm Scott. I'm Dan. I'm Abby. And I'm Matthew. And we're your fabulous learning nerds, and we are out. Thanks for listening to the Fabulous Learning Nerds. You know, there are a lot of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention. Meet with teachers make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment of offerings. If you're, if you're thinking of giving it a try, if you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE.